The Alumni UBC Summer Series had to be virtual for the summer of 2021, but what they offered, adventure, discovery, and culinary findings was very real. Small groups gathered in parks for wine tastings, geocachers ventured to Mud Bay or Squamish or further afield, virtual runners raced from the Vancouver to the Okanagan campus, and at any time, the glorious and uplifting sounds of music were available on the Alumni UBC website. The UBC Vancouver campus is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people, and the UBC Okanagan campus is located on the unceded territory of the Seyelks people. This three-part podcast is the story of summer joyfulness and fun, told by UBC alumni, wine, music, and geocaching specialists, and stay-in-the-neighborhood athletes, romantics, and travelers. Come on along. Wine, wrote Robert Louis Stevenson, is bottled poetry. And like poetry, it comes in all forms. Wine tastings to enlighten and enrich our understandings of wine's complexities have gone virtual into homes, gardens, and local parks. The Alumni UBC Summer Series explores the wonders of wine. Taste, sip, swish, and swill, or sneak a gulp, while listening to a virtual wine tasting attendant and a wine aficionado tell these stories. I'm Chris Harley. I'm a professor in the zoology department at UBC, and I've been attending UBC alumni wine events for about 15 years. I was curious to see how the virtual event would work. I'm DJ Kearney, and I'm a proud UBC alum. It was several decades ago, and I ended up, thankfully, with a BA. I always wanted to go into sciences. My father was a geophysicist and I wanted to be just like him. I realized along the way that math wasn't my strength, so luckily I had a lifetime of rock hounding with my father, which sort of led me into wine in a curious way. I had you know, wonderful years at UBC and I bounced around in a couple of different careers just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, a little bit of fashion, a little bit of TV, <laughs> quite a lot of cooking, which eventually led me to culinary school. I have a background in classical cooking. I didn't end up with a degree in geology, but it really helped shape that interest in wine, which actually I'd been tasting since a five-year-old with my English parents, tiny little sips here and there. That time in university combined with my father and my interest in food and my chef training that sort of got me in this path of wine. I spent a couple of years accumulating as many wine designations as I could. And that sort of got me to this point where I realized I love to teach about wine more than anything else. So that's my sort of full circle, wine, rocks, food, (laughs) they all interweave. DJ Kearney is a well-known and beloved Vancouver wine tasting host, as well as an accomplished writer and wine judge. Like so many of us, she had to pivot and adjust during the pandemic. The global pandemic and our shift to virtual everything has been fascinating in the wine world. I'm just sort of trying to add up in my head. I think I've over 200 virtual wine sessions I have given in the last 14 months. 
it's fascinating because it's a it's a whole new platform. It makes me think differently about how we engage, what matters, how powerful words are. I love the ones where we can combine words and images. And I build a lot of pictures into the virtual tastings that I do because it also takes us away. We haven't been able to travel. And if I can show pictures of a vineyard in Tahiti, and yes, there is one, uh, or something in China or beautiful high altitude one in, in Chile or, or Sicily. It just gives that element of escapism. But it's allowed us to connect in a different way, you know, through the matrix of wine. And it's lovely when people have the wine at home and I've got the wine here in my office and we taste together. Chris Harley, like most people, had never been to a virtual wine tasting and wondered how to approach it. He signed up on the Alumni UBC Summer Series website, and four bottles of rosé were delivered to his door. Well, one of the things I was most worried about was, can we actually try all four bottles of wine? And fortunately, the happy solution was to have our neighbors come over and set up the laptop in the yard so we could all socially distance. We are fortunate to have two sets of neighbors across the street with kids the same age as ours. So they form a little pack that just roams around through the neighborhood anyway. And throughout the pandemic, the adults haven't seen nearly as much of each other as we would like. So this was one of our first opportunities as things are beginning to open up again to actually spend some time in person with these friends of ours. Our yard is quite small in Kitsilano, uh, but it, we have finally a cherry tree that has grown large enough to provide some nice shade. The roses were blooming. The summer heat hasn't killed the other plants in the yard yet. So it was a really nice time to be outside and it was a very pleasant, mild afternoon. So it was just perfect conditions for, for spending an afternoon out in the yard. Chris and his friends settled in to listen to DJ, who understands what the Roman writer Petronius meant when he wrote, wine is life. Wine reflects where it grows, the, both the climate, the soil, the vintage, the weather, the touch of the winemaker. This is a concept that we call terroir, a beautiful French word that's derived from a Latin word. And this idea of terroir encompasses the vine reflecting everything that it experiences from the ground to rainfall to the winemaker's touch, etc. But obviously that most important interaction is the plant's roots with its soil matrix. And, you know, even though scientists tell us that we can't taste rocks, right? There are no flavor esters or, or flavor compounds that we can get from rocks. There is an interaction that takes place. And once you know what to look for when you're tasting wine, you can get the sense of that geology, the chalk of Chablis, the granite of the Rhone, you know, the limestone in Burgundy. It's there and we can decode it. There are 2.8 billion cases of wine made every year around the world in almost 70 countries. And not all of that wine has to have this profound voice of terroir. Every country has its wine history. Europe leads the pack, but Canada is definitely appearing on the radar. Wine is such a, a cultural aspect. It's liquid history. It is old. It is 
embedded in many countries' cultures in an, in an important way, whether it's Chianti or Saint-Emilion or the Mosul Valley, there's an identity to the wine from that region that is steeped in history and time and culture. And people just grow up with an understanding of what wine from those named regions are. So, you know, that just speaks to the fact that wine is is just so deeply a part of life in Europe. In the New World, which is everything else but Europe, it's different. You know, if we think about us in Canada, our wine tradition is much, much younger. New World regions, we label things varietally, but we're beginning to recognize our place names, our appellation names. We're modest wine drinkers. We have a greater understanding of Nova Scotia and Ontario and BC's wine regions. Quebec has a very exciting emerging wine region. So slowly it's becoming something that we think about more often, you know, day by day or week by week. We're turning heads around the world <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the industry level, at the trade level, not really the consumer level, but that will come in time. British Columbia has its own wine culture. Throughout the 80s and 90s, a lot of those vines were pulled out and wonderful high-quality vines were, were planted in our province and lavishly planted. We have close to 80 different vine species here in our 11,000 acres. So that's a little bit nuts if we put BC in a global context. <laughs> We've got many, many grapes, but it's also symptomatic of a young wine-growing region, right? We'll whittle that down as the the decades go by. The virtual event Chris and friends attended focused on four rosés from the Okanagan, Birchblock Vineyard, Cedar Creek Estate Winery, Haywire, and Poplar Grove Winery. UBC alumni own each of these vineyards. So delighted to host you and all of our fantastic speakers uh, for our webinar this evening. It's entitled Rosés of the Okanagan. That's a perfect topic for such a beautiful June evening. Many others had gathered for the event on that warm June evening, spreading blankets on park lawns, sitting on couches or around tables at home four rosé wine bottles and devices in place. I am not normally a, a rosé drinker, although maybe I will be now. So I didn't know what to expect or have very many preconceived notions. I didn't even know what foods would pair well with rosés. So we did some very hasty research and then sort of farmed out some of the menu items. So someone brought cheese and I grilled some shrimp and we were able to put together a nice little table of food to eat with the wines, which made it sort of more social and more fun and arguably improved the, the wine experience as well. To me, what's special about rosé is it combines, most rosés are made, for, made from red grapes, so we have the combination of the, you know, the structure and intensity that we get from red wine with the freshness and lightness that we can appreciate from white wine. So it's really the best of everything, and there's so much rich style and diversity that's possible for rosés in BC. We started with the Pink Bub, which was by Haywire, I think, and that ended up being my favorite. It was just such a bright, delicious wine, and it, it sort of set the tone really nicely for the whole event. 
We are going to meet ooh, a couple who actually met at UBC. During the event, with photos illustrating his description, Murray talked about his vineyard. This is a lower block of our vineyard. We call ourselves Birch Block Vineyard because we have a big stand of beautiful white birch trees on the upper block. This is the lower one looking over Skaw Lake uh, to Mount Christie. So we're on the west side of Skaw Lake looking east. So we get the first uh, morning sun, which is great, especially for Pinot Noir. It dries up any kind of morning dew. We have a big diurnal shift, so big temperature shift from day and then, then overnight. So it helps with the um, mildew because powdery mildew, powdery mildew is yeah. like a huge, huge thing in the Okanagan. And we don't, we are not affected by that because of the winds. You get some good air circulation, we're fairly higher elevation, and then just that early morning light. So yeah, like I said, the good airflow really helps farm the way that we like to farm. Without we really just um, use compost. We spray a bit of uh, sulfur for the powdery mildew, and we spray uh, a seaweed spray. Chris and his friends listened and watched the computer sitting in the shade, birds chirping. It was just the right amount of people for the number of bottles we had because there would still be some left from the previous bottles if we felt like we needed to go back and have another sip for comparison. So none of us are super high-level foodies. We don't know all of the language around the different tasting notes, but we were able to, you know, sort of explain why we liked particular ones, which one went really well with, you know, some of the food that we had. And I now know if we are going to have, you know, more sort of afternoon picnics, which wine I can get that will make my neighbors happy. The Okanagan is far from the only wine producing region in Canada, but it's making history. It's got, one could say, like Petronius, a life's history of its own. We had a very small sacramental vineyard planted in the Kelowna area in the mid-1860s. We had our first commercial winery in the 1930s. You know, it's been a, a slow incremental march. Many things played a role in it. The Asuyus Indian Band planting a vineyard in 1968. We had uh, outside consulting in the form of the Becker Project. We had the NAFTA agreement where things change from uh, hybrid vines to the important winemaking vine called Vitis vinifera, the Eurasian vine species. So it's been a, a series of steps. There wasn't really one moment or one importation of grape varieties. I've been lucky enough to be part of uh, something that's called the Judgment of BC, and I co-founded this along with the BC Wine Institute and a wonderful gentleman who we lost earlier this year, Stephen Spurrier, one of the most important wine personalities, wine visionaries in the world, an Englishman. He started something very famous called the Paris Tasting or the Judgment of Paris that compared Californian and BC wines. And I met Stephen years ago and convinced him to come to BC. And because he was here touring around, I thought it would be a great idea to start our own benchmark tasting called the Judgment of BC. And we ran it for five years. Stephen came in the first year and in the fifth year when we concluded it. And the whole point was to 
compare BC wines in a blind tasting with, you know, 30 to 40 judges and international judges as well as local ones. And in a blind tasting situation, look at BC wines against globally acknowledged benchmark styles. Dozens of wines were tasted in a blind tasting. When the results were evaluated, BC really stood out. We have a distinctive and recognizable style of Pinot, of Riesling, and of Syrah in particular. Also Merlot as well, but those three Riesling... Pinot and Syrah really rose to the fore in a style that our global wine experts would say afterwards, this has no counterpart in the world. I mean, that just it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because this is, you know, this is where wine gets very serious. We're going to hear from Wes first, and Wes is an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology in the Department of Chemistry at UBC Okanagan. I would say we were listening most of the time. We were having conversations while the event was happening, but we sort of kept an ear on what was happening, and every once in a while we would realize, oh, we missed something that was important or interesting, and then we would say, hey, did somebody catch that detail on you know, this vintage of wine or, you know, whatever it might have been. Author of a recent study by a team of UBC Okanagan researchers that has led to the development of a preventative strategy for protecting grapes from volatile phenols. But that was, I think, another sort of nice benefit of the virtual event was it could be more social. It's like watching a movie in your living room instead of in the theater. You don't have to be quiet or worry too much about interfering with someone else's enjoyment of the event and we could really be ourselves. These are flavored compounds present in the smoke that may be absorbed into grapes as they ripen and impact wine flavor. As a scientist and a bit of a nerd, I was looking forward to the chemists presenting on the smoke taint and I found that piece interesting and it's something that I hadn't thought very much about. Wes, take it away. Thank you, DJ, and also thank you to Alumni BC for kindly inviting me to share some of our work. As DJ already has mentioned, smoke taint is a challenge that's been faced not just by BC, but any wine-producing region with risk of forest fires. Climate change is one of the areas that I conduct research on and thinking about how as it gets warmer and fire seasons get longer and more severe, what sort of impacts that's going to have on an industry like the BC wine industry was a little bit sobering, but interesting to think about how they might approach that sort of challenge. Winemaking is in the details, and the Bancrofts strive for perfection. As Sarah explains, it's not just about grapes and soil, labels matter too. In terms of the label, it's kind of interesting story. We. We're trying to find the exact right pink. Obviously, my magazine background, I'm interested in typography. Murray's got an art history degree. He's super interested in all kinds of things. And we ended up finding the exact color we wanted at a hotel in Malibu. Motel in Malibu, yeah. <laughs> and so we took the card to our designer and they said, this color does not exist. We did all kinds of, we went to three or four different printers. We eventually tracked it down, ironically, to a printer. It was a custom printing card. Hand dyed in Paris. Paris, Which we had just come back from after spending a year 
living there. We'd just so, be living yeah. in Paris. So, I mean, everything we've been doing is like we, like our petulant natural is okay. like a handcrafted so um, uh, kind of font. They've brought a lot of other aspects of wine to their wine. How they came across the exact color of their label, <laughs> the the studying of different colors, the work with a colorist to come up with that very, very specific pink that has no counterpart in the world. That mattered to them as much as farming their Pinot with low inputs in uh, in Caledon. So that's, that's a lovely example of how you can bring much more to wine than just farming and winemaking. It's just fine to have a playful, catchy, maybe somewhat naughty or irreverent label. That's just fine. But I'm always drawn to something a little more classical, a little more elegant. There's um, a little truth in the wine, in the label business, and that is blue is not usually a successful color for a wine label, and neither is green, oddly enough, even though it should stimulate thoughts of organic and natural. <laughs> but usually those are two colors that are avoided in the label world, but sometimes they're an absolute smash hit. The Tiffany turquoise blue is showing up over and over again in wine labels these days because of its the associations of luxury that we have with that color. So yeah, I care a lot about wine labels. One of the wine labels that I love most in British Columbia are the ones from Sea Star. They have a series of beautiful sea stars and they're about seven or eight different labels and they're all botanically correct. I think they've absolutely nailed time and place and the wine quality lives up to your expectation when you buy that beautiful artistic bottle. So I, I love that. What are DJ Kearney's favorite wines? It's seemingly impossible for her to say as it changes daily. But on one particular day, this was her list. Notice one pick sneakily becomes two. For Syrah, oh, so hard to just pick one. I will say Le Vieux Pain in the South Okanagan. You know, they're very famous for Syrah, the Cuvée Violette. Syrah from Le, Le Vieux Pain is something that embodies a benchmark style of cool climate. Okanagan Syrah. When it comes to Riesling, uh, I'm going to say Tantalus. Uh, they're old vines. It's such a Blade Runner style. It's distinctive from Mosul and Rhine and Austrian. Um, I'm also going to say Martin's Lane as well. They're Riesling. I, I can't just say one because uh, these are two very, very fine ones from lovely old vineyards. And then when it comes to Pinot Noir, it's also difficult. Again, Again, I think Martin's Lane is making something absolutely extraordinary in British Columbia, but I would also have to add Spearhead into that Pinot and a couple of others. But those are my choices for today. While we're on the subject of picking favorites, Chris and his friends had their favorites from the tasting. My favorite was the sparkling wine, the Pink Bub. But I also really liked the Cedar Creek. My friend's consensus favorite was the Poplar Grove. There were no bad wines in the bunch, and it was sort of a unique chance to try a bunch next to one another so you can really compare them as opposed to just having one glass and then some days, weeks, months later trying another wine and, and not remembering the details of your first sip. We were all pretty happy at the end of the event, and one might blame the wine for that a little bit, but I think it was 
a combination of the information and thinking about how wines are made and what strategies go into producing a certain flavor or a certain experience with the wine and being with friends who we don't see enough of and being outside as you know we are just entering the summer when we can spend a lot of time outside without being rained on or cold it was just a really really lovely experience and I am looking forward to opportunities to do that again with or without a virtual event to inspire us I think there's intimacy is achievable and that has happened. It's nice when you can see people and I, I prefer those ones where I can actually see the gallery and not just look at myself in that little icon. But I think, you know, wine is a terrifying subject and there's something about someone being in their home that makes them much more comfortable talking about wine. That's one of the things that I've noticed. We can also have a much bigger wine audience. You know, we can have uh, talk to people across the country without having to have them all in a room at a convention center. So in a way, it's had a, an element of inclusion that had surprised me. But I also know that people that I've been involved in tastings with through my work have said they want to have the option to do both, you know, to stay at home and taste wine, but also to come to events when they feel like tasting in person. So it's absolutely changed the landscape of how we communicate about wine and beer and spirits. Cheers, saluti, viva la vin. Alumni UBC is your alumni association, connecting alumni to the university and to each other. You can take advantage of perks and benefits, attend a career development event, or sign up to volunteer for a cause that makes a difference in your community. We also have contests, a travel club, and social events around the world. Download the Alumni UBC app or visit alumni.ubc.ca to learn more.